Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. My life as a stripper was so much more controversial and for some reason, you know, the thing that more people had an issue with. I was ready to jump out of a window, basically, and I was unrecognizable to myself. This other thing with the teacher was more relationship-like. And I was like... Really? Like, that's you. That's that's it? That's what I am? I'm just bad at being uncomfortable? So simple, and it also makes me feel like such a dick. Why is it that the most successful people have often overcome the greatest struggles? How do you find that light in the dark? That's what I'm here to find out. I'm Anna David, and this is Struggle to Success. Okay, so... I want you to know, hi, welcome to Struggle to Success. I want you to know, I don't actually get nervous before I interview people, but I was nervous before this one because when I decided to switch the podcast's focus, I said to myself, my dream guest is the person I'm about to introduce you to, but I'll never get her. I figured I'm going to throw a LinkedIn message out there to my shock. She writes, pretty much right back with who to email at her company. And so I was too freaked out. So I waited like a week. Anyway, I'm so excited that the guest is Susie Batiste. She's the founder of Poopery and Supernatural. In case you don't know, uh, that's a 500 plus million dollar empire. She's number 77 on the list of Forbes list of, uh, richest self-made women. It's not that. That is not what the thing is that got me so um, excited about her. It's that, as she says, her business is like the least interesting thing about her. She is a powerhouse of spiritual development. And um, everything that I've seen her do and say um, has just really lit me up. And, you know, she's somebody who's extremely open about the poverty, the abuse, the depression, the bankruptcies um, that, that she suffered along the way. And please listen to this one. We get into, you know, she really did blow my mind a few times talking about uh, the pain of growth that she doesn't really see as pain, um, the different types of therapy and modalities that she sought out. She's not a therapist or a doctor, but she's extremely knowledgeable about the effectiveness of each of them and the role that plays in success and how she defines success. So I'm going to stop rambling and I'm going to give you Susie Batiste. Susie, as I told you uh, in the email that I sent you originally, you were my sort of dream guest. I messaged you on LinkedIn being like, this woman is never going to respond. You did with not just responding, but with an XX at the end. I was like, she can't <laughs> a virtual kiss. I can't. <laughs> That's so fun. I loved your message. I was resonant. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do this thing. And, and what's amazing too, is you've just joined Genius Network, 
which is, you know, has changed my life in uncountable ways. So it felt very meant to be. I'm so grateful to you. So one of the um, things that has drawn me to following you is just how open you have been about struggle and how much you you understand what a role that plays in, in success. Mm-hmm. Was it ever, uh, did you have hesitations about being so open? Um. I don't, I, you know, it's one of those things where transparency has, it's an evolution, right? So I didn't know if I didn't hold things, but, you know, inside, but the more people ask, I would feel inside and be like, yeah, why don't you know this? You know, it's not always easy. Um, everything is for my own evolution and it's not always pretty. It's sometimes really sloppy and messy. And I want to tell people about the sloppiness and the messiness because uh, it gives them a little bit of hope. And it's also realistic. It's the truth. So as I become more clear within myself, um, I just naturally become more transparent because I, I want to speak the truth, be the truth. And that's kind of a personal thing that I, it's good hygiene for me. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so, you know, your quote unquote origin story is, you know, you were an entrepreneur, early teenager and, um, and experienced bankruptcy before most of us have graduated from college. Where, yeah. where, where did this entrepreneurial streak come from? You know, I don't know. I really think it came from, um, I wasn't raised with a lot of money. So I was always resourceful. You know, I didn't think, oh, I'll go to the store and get something. I was always like, I'll make it. You know, Mm. I'll take, I'll go out in the garage and dig up some stuff. And if I want a a belt rack, then I will get a piece of wood and put some nails in it and create a belt rack, right? And I'll paint it cute. Um, But I had this natural resourcefulness just because that's what we did. All of my clothes were made um, most of my childhood. Um, a little bit we bought, but most of them were made. And um, when I was 17, I invented a pair of shoes, denim pumps. As I was like, hey, why don't we have denim pumps? This was back when you wore like straight leg jeans and the pumps were different colors, you know, like you're too young for that, but like it was the mm, 80s. No, no it was not like, too young. Yeah, it was like 1981. And um, you know, like if you had on a pink shirt, you wore pink pumps. And I didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, well, if they were denim, they would match everything. So my boyfriend at the time's um, aunt had a shoe or, or worked at a shoe factory. So I drew them up, cut up a pair of jeans, got some leather scraps. And she made me this pair of pumps. And I called Guess when I was 17 years old and said, hey, I have an idea for these pumps that I made. And you guys should make them. And they said, well, come see us because we're coming out with the shoe line. And I went to tell my mother, and my mother said, you can't go to New York City. You're just a little girl from Arkansas. They're going to chew you up and spit you out. And that really kind of crushed a little bit of that innovation, but it's just literally the way I was born, is let me make something, and then let me, I wasn't even thinking about selling the shoe for a business. I just thought it was a good idea, and it should be in the world. So I called Guess, who was the top gene manufacturer. So there wasn't any strategy behind it. It was just like, I always did things that lit me up and turned me on and that's making stuff. Yeah. And so because your mom said that you said, you know, she must be right. Let me not do this. 
Yeah. 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 yeah I, I didn't go. And as a matter of fact, um, Anna, I was in New York probably even three years ago. And I told one of my old coaches, I called her and I said, you know, Jillian, I don't think I'll ever be comfortable in New York City. I've come so many times and I just don't understand what's going on. And she said, well, it's your story from when you were young. Never had I put those together. Now, like, you know, one of my most recent trips to New York City, I was at the Equinox Hotel restaurant before it was open, you know, with my publicist. And I've been to the swanky underground Soho parties where there's 80 people and three quarters of them are celebrities. Like, it's wild how much my reality has shifted from just that internal story being changed. Yeah, I relate to that. I remember the first time that I saw, I was on a TV show and I saw a message board saying really nasty things about me. And I told my mom and she goes, we should quit the show. And like, I, I took that stuff as that's what I was raised on. Now I get that it was just very limited thinking on my, it was a reflection of their own fear. Yeah. And, 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 and breaking out of that is very complicated when our formative years are so important to our brain development. Yeah. How do you, how have you done that? Oh God, lots, lots and lots and lots. Um, I'm actually, uh, just told my social media, a girl who helps me write that I need to make a list of all of the therapies I've done over the past 20 years. I mean, I've drank ayahuasca over a hundred times. I've done several other plant medicines. I've done every workshop known to man. You know, I do EMDR every single week. I do therapy every week. I have coaches. I have uh, spiritual mentors. I, it's a lot. I, um, EMDR, I started doing last year after kind of knowing for the decade before that I was due for that, for that chair and going like, I need to avoid it. So I waited till I had a total breakdown. I was like, well, I'm crying every day. So why don't I just go and have a place to cry? I've never experienced something so game changing. Oh yeah. Was it one of your big ones? Yeah, it, it, I put it at top of my list, and I found out about it through um, Dr. Daniel Amen of the mm-hmm. Amen Clinic. Yeah, I went and had my, my son wanted to have his brain scanned because he, um, uh, I don't know if he has or thought he had ADD. I don't remember what the result was, but um, they showed me PTSD in the brain, in my brain. They could see it, and I said, well, what do I do? And I started looking at the brain as an organ. I had done a lot of spiritual work, but I never thought about the brain as an organ and as just like your heart. What would I do for my good, you know, for my heart health? So um, they said three things that they've seen actually change the brain. That's EMDR, hypnosis, and somatic therapy. They said that what they've seen is cognitive behavioral therapy has zero changes in the brain. doesn't mean it's not beneficial, but I started looking at it as how can I change my brain and, and help these patterns that are in there. And how quickly did you notice that it was effective? Oh, after my first EMDR. So, I mean, you know, first, you know, you do a couple of talk therapies, but after the first one, like literally the trigger wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so in terms of, you know, I don't want to like pry too deeply into the specifics of the trauma, but, um, which trauma, 
Well, yeah. Um, you know, the, the stuff that happened, you know, by the age of 21 in terms of abuse, um, the role that played in depression, do, do you believe it's sort of a, um, you know, I, I, I believe depression, addiction, all of those things. It's sort of like you can have it, you have, one has a genetic predisposition, but it's exacerbated or diminished depending on what happens to us before the age of say 10. Um, is that, is that something you believe? Um, you know, I don't know what I believe. Um, what I believe is there have been periods where I was really depressed. Um, we could say that it's genetic. I, I believe what my mentors have taught me, um, Gay and K Katie Hendricks say that depression is unfelt sadness and anger. So I prefer to lean more towards that camp than I have any genetic predisposition. What I think was funny, and I actually told someone on a podcast interview, I said, I think when you go through the medical things and they go, do you have a history of heart disease? You have a history of this. They should say, do you have family history of unexpressed anger? Do you have family history of unexpressed sadness? Do you have history? <laughs> that is what I believe is genetic that I was right. taught, I was taught how not to feel by yeah. people that don't feel. Yeah. I was taught that I can't express by people that were afraid of expression. So I believe that. And I don't, I'm not a psychologist and I am not a doctor. What my practice is, is can I feel, can I express what I'm feeling? And I know that when I think back to when I had what I was actually said, clinical depression, and that it was hereditary. I was on Zoloft for seven years, between 30 and 37 years old. And I believe them. But when I look back now, I had a hell of a lot of unexpressed sadness and anger. So as, I, as I've learned to express that, I am not a depressed person at all. So is it hereditary? I believe that those patterns of not feeling were what was hereditary. That's fine. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Did, Isn't it? Did the medication help you during those years? It did. I had postpartum depression after my daughter. And I remember being in a green bean aisle in the grocery store and feeling like the light, like the sun came out, like, oh, oh my God. Um, I don't believe I needed it for seven years. Um, I started drinking and smoking pot because it was so, it made me so off balance that I was on it probably six years too long mm -hmm. until I finally was like, this, this is what the problem is. And then I had my bank second bankruptcy at 38 and went to a really deep depression, but also had a lot of went to Byron Katie's workshop and got to express a lot of unfelt sadness and anger and came out a free person and was never depressed and was sober for eight years after that. I never even touched alcohol, zero desire in my body. Yeah. So that's my personal journey. Again, this, this hits triggers with people because, you know, I'm talking about, you know, people think that addiction is, is hereditary and genetic. And I don't know anything about that. I know my dad died an alcoholic. I just know that I am not. Yeah, I'm sober uh, 18 and a half years, believing I'm an alcoholic. And I think the first 10 years, I really drank the Kool-Aid and was like, well, it's this way or the other. The other people are in denial. And now I've learned over the years, I have absolutely no idea about anybody else. I know about me. Yeah. yeah. And that's all I can ever really speak about with any authority. 
Um, and so ayahuasca, you know, and, and ayahuasca is a very controversial concept in, in sobriety. Um, and, and I've learned, I don't, I have, I, was it a big decision to go to it? You know, did I, you know, you sort of famously had a huge experience the very first time that you did it. Yeah, no, I, um, I was super into Byron Katie's camp, which is the opposite of ayahuasca. When that happened, you know, I was, I don't remember if they call them their apprentices or something. And I would, I was just into her work for about four years. And, um, my son was in a really dark place. He was 19. And I really thought he was kind of goth and I thought, well, I won't have this kid for long. I need to just love him. I'd done enough of the work to realize I didn't control him. I woke up one morning and I hear ayahuasca and Dustin. I didn't even know what ayahuasca is. This was 13 years ago. And I remember typing on the computer, A-W-A. I'm trying to phonetically spell it. And I see an article uh, from National Geographic called To Hell and Back. And um, I just went, he needs to go. And I sent it to him. And he's like, I need to go. And that was a Wednesday morning. On Saturday morning, he was on a plane to Peru. Um, 19 years old, um, in the jungle, 10 days, no Wi-Fi, no cell phone, no contact with him whatsoever. He comes out of the jungle, calls me. His first words were, mom, God is real. He's, he's crying with his heart blown open. And he says, I've been healed. And I just bawled. And when he got home, I sat up talking with him to like two or three in the morning, like I would a guru. What'd you see? What happened? Tell me about this. And then I was like, I was still doubtful, but I was like, I'm going to go check this out myself. Right. And then of course that began a whole, began a whole journey of my own into the medicine, but that's how I started with the medicine, but it was, it was a voice and people go, people go, did you, do you, did you worry about sending your 19 year old down to the jungle, you know, with no contact with anyone? I said, no, you didn't hear the voice. Like it was very profound. And the voice, how many times would you say in your life you've heard it or is it uncountable? I mean, it's not uncountable, but it's not a lot, but there have been pivotal moments. Uh, and who is that voice? Is it my higher self? Is it God? You know, I don't know. I know I'm not psychotic, um, but I know that there is something that's so profound that shakes me every once in a while. And has that been true um, in terms of business? Um, I don't know if I particularly heard a voice in business, but I definitely had really super strong intuitive hits that I can't ignore or that I choose to not ignore, you know, to go, what the hell is this? Even though it doesn't look like anything on the surface. Um, I've definitely had that not in per se a voice, but more in a feeling or a knowing. And uh, in terms of coaches, when did you say, okay, this is something that I, I, I know will improve my life, and how many have you had? I've probably had maybe four or five. I've never had a business coach. That's the reason Genius Network. I'm like, okay, whatever you're doing, Joe, it's not what I do. Um, I'm not interested in more marketing. I'm not, I just don't do that. Um, I think they're great people and delightful, so he's going to kill me for that, but Um, I'm also curious, like, what am I doing there? Um, and I know there's a reason, um, but what I, what I do is I'm always curious. Wait, what was the question? I got lost there. 
coaches. Oh, oh yeah, coaches. Oh, yeah. The first coach I had, I was in Montreal at C2MTL, and it's a like commerce and creativity merge or something in Montreal. And my first coach was this woman. Her name is Jillian Farabee. She's a creative director for Cirque du Soleil or was. And I'm into doing some sort of somatic move, you know, movement. And she goes, there's creativity trapped in your body. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I went up to her and I'm like, what are you talking about? There's creativity trapped in my body. Like, I need to know more. And I started working with her. And then she told me um, eventually that she was uh, part of the Hendrix program, which is Gay and Katie Hendrix. Then I started working with them. And since then, J.P. Sears is my heart coach. I had a couple of the Hendrix coaches uh, through going through their leadership and transformation program. Uh, now, J.P. Sears is my heart coach. And uh, Gay Hendrix is my spiritual mentor. So if we can say he's a coach, he's more of a kind of that um, integrity check point. Okay. Yeah, so I've, I've never had a business coach. I think that a lot of people think of J.P. Sears as straight up comedy. And they don't know that he actually could serve as a heart coach. Well, he doesn't. Um, he actually just did that. I think I brought him out of retirement, JP, for listening to this. Um, he hadn't coached. He had been a life coach for 18 years before he started his comedy. Most people don't know that. I didn't no. know that. I didn't know that. But when I met him, within five minutes, I was crying. And then the next two times I met him, I'm like, okay, what the hell are you doing? And he told me he used to be a life coach and he would just go straight to my heart. And I'm like, so for me, it's kind of funny. I'm known in the world as a business person because I laugh because that's literally the least of my interest. Um, is JP the one who told you about Genius Network who connected you to that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of business, so Poopery was, you know, the quote origin story is it was successful for a minute one. You know, you take $25,000 and it's on the market within nine months and in 15 stores by the end of the first month. Is that true? Is that all accurate? Now, what was it? Wait, what were the numbers? <laughs> okay. $25,000 invested. Yep. Uh, on the market within nine months. By the end of that, you know, first month in business, sold in 15 stores. And within the first year, a million dollars sold. Yeah, uh, all of those are true. First year, million dollars in revenue. Um, that was from um, April 2007 to April of 2008. So it was that, that fiscal year. And it took me nine months to create the formula and another nine months to get on the market. So that part is a little not true. Um. And, and then in terms of manifesting, I don't know where you stand with that word, but, you know, you mentioned sort of, you know, your rewrite of the New York story and you're like, you know, the most, you know, doing all the quote fabulous things, you know, did you ever expect this being on the list of America's richest self-made women? Yeah, no, never, ever, ever imagined it was possible. As a matter of fact, after I found out, um, I laid in my kitchen floor for four hours with my son and my um, ex-husband, just not ugly crying. Mm. And they kept saying, what's going on? And there was this sense of, I, the only way I could explain it, I said, have you ever seen anybody 
finish a long race and they collapse after the finish line. He goes, yeah. And I go, the difference is I didn't even know I was in a race. Wow. So there was some level within me of something that I didn't even know I wanted that existed. So um, I always tell people, I actually don't have a lot of goals. I don't go, here's what I want. I don't believe in that type of manifestation. I believe that limits you because I would never have ended up, my, my goals and dreams would have been much smaller. Yeah, I was just then I know, have now that that whole idea of you know uh, rejection is God's protection or you know this this idea you know you're alive long enough and you start to see that those rejection sorry I start to see that those rejections were um, just the universe having a much bigger vision for me than I ever had for myself. Yeah, I, I believe that where I stand, and actually I'm writing a course on abundance right now that I wrote 14 years ago that I'm revamping before I even started Poopery. I knew how to be abundant. I knew it's about manifesting your reality. The problem I've had with the secret and even some of Abraham Hicks is if everything Abraham Hicks teaches, and they're going like, to call me, but why the F aren't all of your people successful? Um and I do believe people aren't following it, but how can we help people follow it? I believe that whenever I say I want that red car, I'm actually confirming the lack of the red car, right? right. And I'm actually, so I don't do that. I, I do more what's removing. I, I, I believe my internal reality is creating my external reality. Right. So when something happens outside of me, I don't deny and avoid, which is some of the things I think the secret and Abraham Hicks are teaching. It's kind of like ignore that, go to the positive vibration, not saying that's wrong and doesn't work. I have never been focused enough to do that. What I do is go, this is in my reality. What is this here to teach me? What am I here to learn? And I will harvest the shit out of that. And then what I notice is my external reality shifts based on that internal, yeah, uh, based on my internal vibration. You know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, something you just said about um, negative, you know, in terms of the pain of evolving, um, I don't know if you went through this, but, you know, sort of really realizing uh, family of origin things, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's been for me a super painful process to see the reality. It was actually much easier not to. Have you had any of those experiences and what have you done? Well, I would say, is it, I would question, is it easier? Um, what I believe is that it's like, I can imagine a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's an extremely uncomfortable process of, molting. Um, so I love Anise Nin when she says, what is it like the, the, when, when the, when the pain inside the bud became more than the risk it took to bloom, that's loosely translated, but it, it, you know, I was just talking with my son yesterday and I just said, you know, honey, because he kept going, I know I need to do EMDR, and I know I didn't need to do EMDR. And I said, you know what? I hear that the pain isn't enough for you yet. And when the pain becomes enough, you will do whatever you need to do, and I love you, and it's all perfect. 
And if we want to look at reality, there is no time. Yeah. So be easy on yourself, be kind on yourself and realize you're doing it perfectly for what you need to be doing. Yeah. Reframing hard as uncomfortable, I think is also very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay. not, and I'm not just blowing smoke. Like it's no. literally what I know. Yeah. I know for me to force him to do something, is like trying to force a flower. It is to bloom. It's extremely unkind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's arrogant. How can I know what he needs to see? Yeah. You know, and what I know is I, I have seen at exactly the precise moment I needed to. Yeah. Yeah. That's the well, only truth I know. Okay. So we, um, as we wrap up, um, I have just, when I say lightning round, I just mean quick answers to these That's things. Good. First okay. thing that comes to mind, what is your morning routine? Oh God, it's about three hours. I wake up at about five or five thirty a.m. I drink a cup of tea and I meditate. Non-negotiables. I usually write a little bit and then I do either yoga or um, hit training, and I alternate those. And then I get dressed for work. Hit training like high interval. But yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. Um, what is one of the books that has changed your life? The first book after my bankruptcy, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl. What is your favorite quote? Do I contradict myself? Very well. Then I contradict myself, for I am large and I contain multitudes. Is from Walt Whitman. Um, you've, you've mentioned coaches. Do you have one person who has served as a mentor? Yeah, Gay Hendricks. Um, this, this is going to be hard to answer in a sentence. Uh, what is your spiritual practice? All of the above. What is your, <laughs> your great? What is your best quality? That I'm a curious explorer. What is your worst quality? I don't believe I have one, but what other people would tell you is that I'm very particular and everything matters. I consider it that I'm highly sensitive and that's a really good quality, but the world doesn't quite see it that way all the time. And how would you define um, struggle? Mm, necessary for your own evolution. And how would you describe success or define success? It's an inside job. That's it. Good. It's a wrap. I I cannot thank you enough. I look forward to so much to meeting you at Genius. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you for doing this. And yeah, let's talk more. I had fun. I love what you're doing. Right back at you. Thank you, Susie. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.